Take out your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 6. Now, um, I told you a couple of weeks ago that one of my heroes, and, and, and I realize it's a fictitious hero, but one of the, the movies that I loved growing up was the Rocky movies, specific, specifically the first four Rocky movies. And the truth is, I'm one of those guys that likes an underdog story, no matter kind of who's involved. I like the underdog stories, the Rockies, Remember the Titans, the Rudys, Karate Kid, Braveheart, Bad News Bears. The U.S. hockey team that won in 1980, Forrest Gump, and even Hidden Figures. We were at the National Space Center down at Huntsville yesterday, and there's some homages to the those ladies that worked in the background to figure out the math for the rockets to work. Part of the reason I think that I like underdog stories so much and that we like underdog stories so much is because what we celebrate this week is the fact that America, in many ways, was an underdog story. Right? It wasn't supposed to be able to throw off the shackles of the most impressive empire of the day. It wasn't supposed to be able to become its own country. And even after that happened, nobody thought these 13 colonies would figure out a way to work together. We still wonder if that's going to happen some days. But we like that story of somebody that's not supposed to make it, that's not supposed to be there, that suddenly arrives. Well, we were, um, we did a day trip, like I said, to Huntsville yesterday to the Space and Rocket Center. And while we were there, we watched, uh, um, anybody ever been to the Space and Rocket Center? Anybody? Okay. And they have this IMAX theater, you know, and it's kind of a cool theater because it's like on the screen and it's like a planetarium view almost. And they showed a movie there about engineering feats. Now, I know that sounds really exciting, doesn't it? Okay. Well, my kids didn't think it was as exciting as I did. But in the midst of that, they told this really cool story that I had heard somewhere, but had forgotten about. And it was about these four guys. we got a picture of them we're going to put up on the screen. Now, these four guys are students, or were over ten years ago, at Carl Hayden Community High School outside of Phoenix, Arizona. And these four guys were a part of a school that is one of the poorest in the area. It's predominantly ESL students, students that speak English if they speak it as a second language. It's a a place that is not a high-achieving, generally, school. It's a place that's difficult because of the poverty that is there and because the, the home life that isn't always supportive. And at the school, there was a guy that's not in the picture, but is a teacher named, they called him Freddie, that started a robotics club. And he would just scrap together what he could find, and he would get these students together, and they would build robots. Well, in the midst of building robots, they just found out about this competition that was happening in California, International Underwater Robotics Competition. And they decided they would enter. Now, just to let you know, when they entered... Not knowing, the students didn't know this at first, but Freddie, their teacher, entered them not in the high school competition. He entered them in the collegiate level competition. And they asked him why he did that, and he said, well, I figured we were going to lose. I thought we might as well, and as he said it, that we ought to fail miserably. He said he wanted his kids to be exposed to the highest level of robotics. And when I say highest levels, the people that had won it the year before was the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. 
And so they started to build and they couldn't use all of the fancy equipment that other people had. And so they used landscaping plastic pipes. And the glue to go on the pipes, all they could afford to get was basic glue that smelled so bad they couldn't get the smell out. They named their robot Stinky. Now, here's what they had to do. They had to go to Santa Barbara, California. There was a pool set up, and each team had a 10 task to complete underwater. It's measuring something, taking a picture of it, or, or being able to get an understanding of it, being able to pull water out of it into a tube. They had 10 different tasks they had to do. They got there on the first day, they put it in the water, and it didn't work like they thought it would. It, when they wanted to go right, it would go left. When they wanted to go left, it would go right. They said, and they were intimidated immediately, Because everybody there was using manufactured plastics, things specifically for that. Thousands of dollars worth of equipment on their robots. They built their entire one for $600. They said it was also obvious that they were behind technologically because like there was a portion you had to you had to measure the length of a certain box and everybody else was using lasers they literally have a tape measure right there on the front that they hooked onto it and then would pull out they figured out they had a leak that they couldn't figure out where it came from now, I won't tell you how they solved the problem, but you can go Google it if you want to. But they used a very inventive way to solve the problem of the link with a very absorbent material. The next day they went and they competed. And they knew they had outperformed their expectations and they were hoping to place when they got to the medal ceremony. There was also an interview that happened where they had to explain their project and what they were doing. And so when the when the event happened, they started to go up the list of all that was happening, and everybody in the place was shocked when the number two team was announced as the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And the team that won the international competition with their $600 robot was Carl Hayden Community High School. Stinky has been on display at the Smithsonian in recent years because it just shows what underdogs can do when they have a little support and they put their mind to it. In our story today, we're going to see another underdog. Now, we've already talked about a few underdogs in this whole judges series, right? Ehud was the left handed judge. Deborah was a lady who was in charge. Jael wasn't supposed to. She was a foreigner, an outsider. Today, we're going to move into more familiar territory. My guess is that you haven't been as familiar with Ehud and Deborah and Barak and Jael as you will be with Gideon. Now, I think the reason for that is when you think about it logically, how in the world would you do Ehud's story on a flannel graph? Right? Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Y'all, y'all remember flannel graph, right? How would you do Ehud's, the hilt goes in all the way into the belly? Or how would you do Jael's tent peg to the forehead on flannel graph? Like, the reason we know Gideon is because it's a little less violent than the first two, right? But he is an underdog nonetheless. In fact, he may be the biggest underdog that we've seen so far in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 1, says this. The Israelites, surprise, surprise, 
did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You know the cycle, right? So they do something evil in the sight of the Lord. What does the Lord do? He hands them over. Well, today, as we're reading this, this particular one is the Midianites. So the Lord handed them over to the Midianites to serve seven years, and they oppressed Israel. Because of Midian, the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in mountains, caves, and strongholds. So they're so afraid of what's happening, they're putting themselves in places for security. Next verse. Whenever the Israelites planted crops, this is what the Midianites would do. Along with the Amalekites and the Kittimites, they came and they attacked them. They camped against them and destroyed the produce of the land, even as far as Gaza. So I want you to think about this. For seven years, the Israelites go out, they plant their crops, they get excited. The crops start to come out of the ground. They're excited about the crops coming out of the ground. It's that time of year. It's almost harvest time. And here come the Midianites and the Amalekites and the Kittimites. They left nothing. You know what nothing means? Nothing for Israel to eat, as well as no sheep, ox or donkey. They didn't let them have livestock because what they would do, they would bring their cattle and their tents like a swarm of locusts. Now, if you're an Israelite and you hear the phrase swarm of locusts, like mentioned in Judges, you immediately think of the way God worked for you against the Egyptians. And in this case, God is working against you with the Midianites. They and their camels were without number, and they entered the land to lay waste to it. So Israel became poverty-stricken because of the Midianites, and the Israelites cried out to the Lord. We're going to leave it there for a second. So the Israelites, here's the cycle, right? They do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. God sends a judgment upon them. Now, here's the thing. The Israelites, after seven years, cry out to the Lord, what's the next thing we expect? A deliverer to come, right? But Gideon's story doesn't even start yet. Because God throws a curveball to the Israelites here and says, wait a minute. If we don't get to the root of the problem, nothing's going to make sense. Next verse. When the Israelites cried out to him because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to them. Now, they would have said, God, we appreciate that. We appreciate the preacher. Uh, You got a preacher with a sword or something? You got somebody that can do something about the Midianites? This is nice, Lord. But, but God's point here was that he wanted them to understand that until they dealt with the root issue that was happening in their country, they were never going to get past this cycle of judgment. He wants to know why they were oppressed. And the prophet tells them this. He said to them, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you out of Egypt and out of the place of slavery. I rescued you from the power of Egypt and the power of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. Don't you remember what I did for you? I took you from Egypt. I delivered you. I made good on my promise. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites whose land you live in. But you did not obey me. He wanted them to understand the root cause of the issue before he sent the deliverer that would take care of them. I'm going to tell you a little spoiler alert for the rest of the book of Judges. They don't learn their lesson. But it's a lesson we ought to. 
Many times in our lives that we wonder why things are happening. We just can't get past that. Or God, can you help me out of this situation? And what God wants us to understand is there's a root of the issue in our lives that we must discover and deal with before we can fully be delivered. Remember, the title of this series is Broken Saviors because these saviors that deliver them are temporary. Gideon, that we're going to talk about, is going to deliver them, but the deliverance will be temporary. In fact, we're going to take two weeks to really talk about Gideon, because Gideon does great things this week, and next week we're going to see Israel sliding farther away. And so here's what I want to talk about today. In the moment of their need, God gives us a picture of the kind of person he uses To deliver Israel. And the question that I want us to ask, the question that I want us to deal with today is, what kind of person is it that God uses? More specifically for you, the question is, how can you be used by God? What are the requirements? What are the prerequisites? What are the characteristics of people that are used by God? And this isn't just a Gideon story. This is throughout Scripture. But I think Gideon's life displays it for us in amazing ways. And the first thing we see in this passage is something we've talked about the last two weeks of this as well. God uses ordinary people. Ordinary people. Look at chapter 6, starting in verse 11, at the call of Gideon. And let's just think about how ordinary he is. It says, The angel of the Lord came, and he sat under the oak that was an Orphrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abizurite. His son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. And Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened? And where are all these wonders that our fathers told us about? He's a little cynical, isn't he? Aren't you glad we don't live in a cynical age? That was sarcasm, right? They said, hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over Midian. He's almost quoting the words of the prophet. He said, you sent a prophet to remind us what you did for us. Then what are you doing for us? Now, and the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. That wasn't what I was talking about either, Lord. That's what Gideon wants to say, right? That is what he says. He says, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the youngest in my father's family. And the Lord says what he says to Moses, what he says to Abram. What he says to Joshua, what he says to us through Jesus, I will be with you, the Lord said, and you will strike down Midian as if it were one man. It'll be easy. God uses ordinary people. Now, how do we know that from this passage? Because he tells us here, he says, I'm from Manasseh. And my family's the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my family. To understand that, you have to understand Israel. Manasseh was the least respected tribe. He says, my family is the poorest and the least respected tribe. And I am the runt of the litter 
in the le- in the poorest family, in the least respected tribe. If you were going to pick anybody to deliver Israel, you could not have gone farther down the scale than Gideon. Now, I know we know Gideon, and so we think of him as a man of faith. We think about Hebrews chapter 11. We think about Gideon, the great hero. When you talk about Old Testament heroes, you ask who they are. Gideon's name's on the tip of our tongue. But when God comes to Gideon, he is the lowest member of the poorest family of the least respected tribe of a nation that is under the bondage of another. Ordinary, ordinary, ordinary. God says, I'm picking you. And it's his ordinariness that makes him useful to God. Can I tell you something? Don't ever insult God by telling him he can't use you. You're saying you don't believe he has the power to use you. Then you are insulting the power of God. Because God sees us not as we are, but what we can be. And he looks at Gideon. And we're going to talk about this in just a minute. He calls him valiant warrior. That is not who Gideon is at this moment or for the next few chapters, really. He is not a courageous warrior. He is not a man that the first thing you think is, man, that guy's full of courage. In fact, most people would have looked at him and said, man, that guy's a coward. God says, Gideon, valiant warrior. God sees who we can be, not who we are. Now, how does he become that? Well, it tells us a little later in Judges chapter 6, verse 34. It says in chapter 6, verse 34, that the Spirit of the Lord enveloped Gideon. So this is as we're getting ready for the battle to begin. We're getting ready for them to call the troops to him. Most of you know the story. He's going to get an army together. As he's getting ready to do that, it says that the Spirit of the Lord enveloped Gideon. The original Hebrew phrase there literally is that God clothed himself with Gideon. That God clothed himself with Gideon. Almost as if God wore him like a suit. They say, what does that mean? It means that he was the vessel that God was using in that moment. The only requirement to be used by God as an ordinary person Is that you are enveloped by the spirit of the Lord. That God uses you as his instrument today. When Gideon says, hey God, why aren't you doing what you used to do? What does Gideon tell him? That's your job. Right? I'm going to do it through who? You. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 26 says about us, those of us that are followers of Jesus, specifically to the church in Corinth, but us brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. You didn't have PhDs, not many powerful. You weren't the strongest in the land, not many of noble birth. You didn't have great families. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. That's why I think I resonated so much yesterday with the 
story of the high school in Phoenix, Arizona, using a $600 plastic pipe robot to defeat the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Because that's the way God works. He takes plastic, cheap parts like us. And if you're offended by that, sorry. Not really, I'm not. Because that's who we are. To shame the wise of the world. New Jersey was advertised many years ago that a man would be playing a very expensive violin at a certain spot. And so crowds came. They gathered. The word spread quickly. The guy man came out. He pulled out his violin and he began to play. And people there described it in ways that sounded like like they had never heard music like this before. They said they could see colors that they had never seen. And the scenes around them enveloped them in ways that were unbelievable to them. It was the most extraordinary experience they had ever had with music the man finished playing the song he took the fiddle or violin and he broke it over his knee cast it aside reached down and pulled out another violin he said the one I just played was a cheap fiddle I bought at the local store for a few bucks he said this is the expensive one and then he said it's not so much the, mu- the violin who makes the music, but the man who draws the bow. And when it comes to being used by God, it's not so much the value of the individual, but it's God who draws the bow. And you may be a cheap fiddle, but with God in command, it makes sweet, sweet music. I read this week about a very well-known Painting, fresco, it's this one. Now, where is this located? Where is this? Where can you see this? Sistine Chapel, right? So on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, who painted it? Michelangelo, right? And it's called the creation of Adam. And they were talking about how different this is from all the other creation drawings or paintings that had been at that time. That in most drawings of creation at that time, God was standing on the earth and was pulling Adam out of the ground. But in this picture, there are some things here that don't communicate with us like they would have to the audience to which Michelangelo painted. First of all, God here literally has the feeling that he is flying to Adam. Do you get that sense? Like the wave is there. The, the, the angels are there. They would have been considered swift. They're carrying him or working with him to get there. But one of the things that you notice if you look at this painting very much at all is who is the one truly acting in this one? It's God. What's Adam doing? He looks like me on a Sunday afternoon after a long day of preaching. Looks like he's in his lazy boy, right? I mean, in that way, it looks he's kind of lounged, waiting, and God is in his initiative coming to him. Do you see that? And they said the magnificence of Michelangelo's painting is that you can see in this painting, God has made every bit of the motion to come to him, and he leaves the smallest of gaps between their fingers. That is Adam's responsibility to accept what God's done. Now, here's the thing. It's almost as if you look at his finger. It's almost as if his finger is here. If he would just literally lift a finger. 
Now, some of you have used that phrase before. You couldn't even lift a finger to help me. I'm not asking who it is, but you've used it. Some of you husbands have heard it before. Would it hurt you to lift a finger to get in here and help me? That's not personal experience. I've just heard that before, all right? It's almost as if in this painting, if he would just lift that finger, he would make contact with the Lord. Now, here's what I'm saying about this. When it comes to being used by God, the first thing we understand, he uses ordinary people and it's at his initiative. He's coming to us, asking us to be a part of his plan. I don't know what Gideon had planned for his life. I have no idea. But what I can guarantee you was not a part of his plan for his life was to be the general of an army that defeated the oppressors that had worked on them for seven years. And my guess is, I don't know what your plan for the rest of your life is, but whatever your plan is, whether it's got 10 years on it, 15 years on it, 40 years on it, four days on it, whatever your plan is for the rest of your life pales in comparison to what God wants to do through you if you will allow him to draw the bow on the fiddle of your life. The second thing we see in this passage, we're not going to be able to read Both of these chapters, but I I would encourage you to go back and read them and read the whole story again because next week we'll pick up there. But the second thing that we see in this passage is that only does God use ordinary people. He uses cleansed people. Look what it says in verse 25. So we have this whole thing where he calls Gideon. Gideon says, no, 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 that's okay. I can't do that. And then he says, no, no, Gideon, I want you to do that. And so finally they come to that agreement. And then verse 25, he says this. On that very night, the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull and a second bull, seven years old. Then tear down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father. Now, when we talk about God using ordinary people, we're talking about God using Gideon, who was the runt of the poorest family in the least respected tribe of Israel, whose dad has a Baal altar at the house. And cut down the Asherah pole beside it. You remember the description of Baal and Asherah? They were the two that they thought fertility depended upon. Verse 26. Then build a well-constructed altar to the Lord your God on the top of his mound. Take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering. I love this detail. With the wood of the pole of Asherah you cut down. The first thing we see in this passage is that God uses ordinary people. But the second thing we see is he uses ordinary people who have been cleansed. If we want to be used by God, we have to remove the sin and the idols from our lives. Two altars cannot exist side by side in our lives. And he says to Gideon, you can't be my champion, my deliverer, when you've got a Baal altar in your family's home. Get rid of it. Now, my guess is if I went to your home this afternoon, there is not an altar dedicated to Baal in the living room. I hope not. But an idol in our lives is anything we've talked about this. We love more, we fear more, we serve more, or we value more than the Lord. And while there may not be a Baal altar in your living room, there are altars to other gods all in your heart. For many of you in this room. Success or family, money, prestige, sexuality, 
And we cannot be used by God with two altars trying to exist side by side. We've got to get it cleaned out before God will use it. One of the pictures that's in throughout this whole Gideon kind of description and throughout Scripture is that we are merely vessels that God uses for His glory and that we are used by God when we are clean. And I can't help but think of the way that we use vessels, cups, spoons, plates in our house. That when you pull something out, and maybe it was in the dishwasher at the wrong angle, maybe it didn't quite get where it needed to be, something was blocking it. When you pull a bowl out and it's still got gunk in the bottom, you don't go, oh, Oh, well, it'll add to it. Right? Right? What do you do with it? You wash it out or put it back in the dishwasher, right? Like, whoo, got to run that back through again. I walked in last night. Um, we got, we, back from our trip, we were all just kind of making stuff around. And Maddie's gotten to where she can make peanut butter sandwiches on her own. She likes peanut butter sandwiches. And she was going to make her a peanut butter sandwich. And she got the bread out, did it all that like a big girl. But she left the bread too close to the edge of the counter. And like eight pieces of bread fell out onto the floor. And when I walked into the kitchen, she was picking up the bread off the floor and putting it back into... And I said, we're going to take that back out, put that in the trash, right? Well, it it hadn't been on there like five, six, I know, I know the five second rule. We're still going to trust that we're going to put this back in, all right? A few weeks ago, our church softball team was desperate because I know they were desperate because they called me. I'm on the roster as a last resort and the last resort had to be pulled I was so last resort, they were going to play with only nine. You could play with ten in church league softball. They were going to play with nine until they decided, well, maybe we could call Lyle. One of the things that happens almost every time I go play softball these days is I don't have softball attire, and so I wear shorts. And I play second base, and when I play second base, I have to get down for ground balls. Whether I catch them or not, i got to get down there and act like I'm trying. And on this particular day, they hit a hot shot to my right, and I made it to it, got on my knee, and backhanded it. One of the best plays I've made in 10 years. I've only played about four games in 10 years, but it was impressive for me. I even got a woo from the crowd, so I knew it was big time. But as I did, the ball was traveling so fast, it spun me, and my knee got shredded. By, it's not fully dirt at the city church league softball field. It's more like gravel with some brown spots. And when I stood up, made the play, and looked down, there was a mixture of dirt, gravel, and blood all over my leg. Now, when I got home, I didn't just slap a few band-aids on it, right? What did I have to do before I could do something about it? I had to clean it up. Get the gravel out. Take some hydrogen peroxide. Burn that thing like everything. Some neosporin. But I had to clean it out first. There are a lot of us trying to be used by God. And we still got dirt and gravel all in ourselves. And he won't use you when you got two altars set up. Isaiah 52, 11. Do we have that one, Steve? says this, 
Leave, leave, go out from here. Do not touch anything unclean. Go out from here. Purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. The point is we got to clean ourselves up to be used by God. And here's the last one. God uses ordinary people that are cleansed. And the last thing is he uses ordinary people who are cleansed and courageous. C.S. Lewis says courage is one of the least talked about Christian virtues, but is essential to all others. My guess is that sitting in this room today or some of you are being immobilized by fear in your life in some way. People are afraid of all kinds of things. You've heard these lists of, of different fears before. Arachnophobias, the fear of spiders. Anophobias, the fear of snakes. Glossophobias, the fear of public speaking, which is higher rate than death. The old Jerry Seinfeld joke is if you have to go to a funeral, most people would prefer to be in the coffin than speaking the eulogy. Dorophobia. Do y'all know what that is? It's the fear of animal fur. Although if you have kids of any age, it means something completely different. Apparently y'all don't watch Dora. That's all right. Cholrophobia is the fear of foul smells. And nomophobia is a new one. That's the fear of being without your phone. 50% of people experience extreme anxiety when they are in a room without their phone. That's not the kind of fear I'm talking about. I'm talking about fear of the future. Medical news that worries you. Marriage that's having a problem. Your kid's life. Something's going on. Financial uncertainty or job with a lack of security. And fear can paralyze us. Now, how do we know Gideon was not the most courageous man? Because of where we find him at the beginning. It tells us that the Lord was um, under the oak tree, was in Orpha. His son Gideon, it tells us in verse 11, was threshing wheat in the wine press. Now, I know you don't do lots of wheat threshing today, but you don't thresh wheat in the wine press. It's a terrible place to thresh wheat. You thresh wheat on top of the hill in order that you would throw the wheat up and all the chaff would blow away and the wheat would fall. You'd have the good stuff there. When you're doing it in the wine press, which was underground, really, you're not getting any of the work that you need. So why is he in the wine press instead of up on the hill? Well, it tells us, right? He's hiding. Now, I want you to think how crazy that is that he's hiding because he's scared of the Midianites, that he's not able to do anything about the Midianites. He asks God throughout the story for different signs because he's scared that what happens if God takes him. When God finally reveals himself, do you know what he says to God? Now I'm scared of you. I was scared of the Midianites. Now I'm scared of you. And the Lord says to him, valiant warrior. Now, valiant is not a word we use a lot today, but it just means courageous. And it's the same thing throughout Scripture. He gives, God doesn't call the brave, he emboldens the called. Gideon would become the leader of an army. And the story of his courage and God giving him courage happens over the entire course of the story. Gideon goes out, blows the horn, 32,000 men come and say, we want to fight with you, Gideon. And then in chapter 7, verse 2 and 3, God says, you got too many. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many troops for me to hand the Midianites over to them, or else Israel might elevate themselves over me. They'll think they did it in their own street. My own strength saved me, is what they'll say. Verse 3, what's the criteria for those that he tells to leave? 
announce to the troops, whoever is fearful and trembling may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So how many? 22,000, over two-thirds of the army, walks away. God doesn't use people who lack courage. He would rather have 10,000 with courage than 32,000, two-thirds of which didn't. Now, we know from the story, he doesn't stop there, right? He cuts it down a lot more. He'd rather have 300 courageous men and women to do his will. God isn't impressed with the size of the congregation. He is impressed with the courage of the chosen. Deuteronomy 20 verse 8 says this. The officers will continue to address the army and say, Is there any man who is afraid or cowardly? Let him leave and return home so that his brothers won't lose heart as he did. Here's the problem God has with cowardice. It is contagious. Fear, cowardice, is a complete lack of faith. The phrase can't be done should never be uttered by the people of God. Adrian Rogers used to talk about the fact that a lot of churches had a bucket committee. He said anytime somebody comes up with an idea, they throw a bucket of cold water on top of it. And the truth is, churches are often the most fearful places on the planet of trying something for the Lord. Well, pastor, I don't think we can do that. Pastor, we've never done it that way before. Pastor, I don't know how we're going to make that happen. Pastor, I don't. It's called the voice of reason. But a lot of times the voice of reason is cowardice. We put it into the way we talk about the way we want to live our lives. The local radio station that I listen to a lot with my family because it plays Christian music. But their mantra is that it is safe for the whole family. Safe is what we're concerned with. Safe is what we want. But the Christian life was never promised to be safe. Second Timothy 1.7 says the Lord has not given us a spirit of fear. But a power. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you will have assurance that God can use you and you will be unusually courageous. Now, here's what I love. When we think about the story of Gideon, I want us to see a transformation because we just read about him cowering in the wine press. You've got your Bibles open. Turn over to chapter 7, verse 12. That's going to be on the screen as well, but I want you to see this. It says, now the Midianites in verse 12, the Amalekites and all the Ketamites had settled down in the valley like a swarm of locusts. So what he's telling us in they're getting ready to do it again, right? This is the eighth time. Seven times they've done it. The eighth time they're getting ready to do it again. And their camels were as innumerable as the sand on the seashore. When Gideon arrived, now what we have here is that he goes into the camp at night, he sneaks in there, he's eavesdropping, and when he gets there in verse 13, it says, when Gideon arrived, there was a man telling his friend about a dream, he said. Listen, I had a dream and a loaf of barley bread. By the way, barley bread was poor man's bread. It didn't have good stuff in it. It was the cheapest bread you could get. He said, I saw a loaf of barley bread come tumbling down into the Midianite camp, struck a tent and it fell. The loaf turned the tent upside down and so that it collapsed. And so he says, listen, this barley bread, the poorest bread, the cheapest bread, the least well-respected bread, turned the whole tent over. And then his friend answered, I love this. 
This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has handed the entire Midianite camp over to him. Now imagine you're Gideon and you hear that. You've gone from cowering in the wine press to outside the tent of the Midianites and you hear your name on their lips. The runt of the poorest family in the least respected tribe strikes fear in the hearts of this powerful enforcer. And look what Gideon says in verse 15. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. He returned to Israel's camp and said, get up, for the Lord has handed the Midianite camp over to you. God uses ordinary people who have been cleansed and are courageous. There's a story in the book of Acts, and I think about it because I think about this particular place where the enemies of God hear or thinking about a man of God that's going to do damage. My question to you really is, are you somebody that strikes fear in the enemy's heart because of who you are and what you've done for the Lord? In fact, there is dread in hell over the people of God being used by God. The enemy hopes we never understand who we truly are in Christ and the power he has given us. In Acts chapter 19, there are these guys that are going around, the seven sons of Siva, and they're exercising demons, casting out demons. And when they get to it, it tells us in Acts chapter 19, they get to this place and there's this people of demons and they go to cast out the demons and they say to the demons, we cast you out in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. You know what that's called? That's called secondhand religion. Right? And so he says, we cast you out in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches. And the demons have one of the best responses in Scripture. I'm not saying they're good. I'm saying their response is good. They say to them, Jesus we know. Paul we know. Who are you? Unless we have a... Real relationship with Jesus will never be able to impact the world for him. Knowing Jesus brings confidence. And here's what I want you to think about as we kind of finish up. I want you to think back to that whole part where God comes to Gideon and Gideon says, God, what are you doing? Because there are some of you in this room even that have heard or have thought about the fact Why isn't God moving in our country, in our nation, in my family like he used to or like I remember back in the good old days? And my answer to you would be that we are God's activity in our generation. And he's waiting on men and women who say, cleanse me, Lord, and use me however you see fit. God looks for ordinary people that have been cleansed and are courageous. Where do you fit in all of that? Are you willing to be used by God? Let's pray together.